so much, choir church. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. This is our last um, part of our series, Fear Not, Peace in an Age of Anxiety. And today we're going to address the issue of control. Control. And I need to confess right at the beginning that this is... Uh, something I deal with in my own life, and I'm sure that many of you do as well. I like to control things. Um, I like for things to go a, a certain way, and I can snap mentally when they, when they don't. Um, I, just an example of ways I try to control. Um, when our second child was, was born, uh, it was just a couple of minutes before uh, it was on a Wednesday night, just a couple of minutes before midnight, and uh, it was November the 23rd. It was the day before Thanksgiving in 1994, and we were at the hospital, and we were at that point where uh, it was time for us to deliver our second child, and you know, you reach a point where, where you know either a baby is going to be born or Jesus is coming because you know, labor pains are a sign of the second coming. And we were right at that moment, and it was 11.58 when I looked down at my wife and said, Sweetheart, let's just wait a couple minutes and we'll have a Thanksgiving baby. And there is a, a song that says, A picture paints a thousand words. And um, that's the only time in our 30 years together that my wife's look at me painted a thousand words. The truth of the matter is, all of us in this room can have controlling tendencies. Does it drive you crazy when you lose control? Let me give you just a real quick little quiz. So take your bulletin, right? Flip it over to the back side where there's a place for you to take notes and grab a pen or a pencil. I just want to ask you a few questions and I want you to respond just with a Y for yes or an N for no to each question and it'll help you know whether or not uh, control is an issue that, that you deal with. Um, and remember, as you answer each one, imagine that someone who knows you well is looking over your shoulder. Um, and, um, you know, remember as you respond to each one, is this what uh, this one who knows me best would describe of, of me? Question number one, do you help other people drive? And you know what I mean by that. You're laughing because you know, right? You tell them what route to take, when to turn, where to park. Do you remind them that the light has changed? Question number two. Do you give unsolicited advice, suggestions, or constructive criticism? Number three. Do you insist on being right and having things done your way? Number four, do you find it difficult to admit when you're wrong? Number five, do you get angry, irritable, or anxious when someone or something makes you late? Or when things don't start on time, or things don't go according to plan. Number six, 
Do you approach perceived wrongs with a relentless pursuit for justice? And number seven, how often or how quickly do you give your resume, your list of good works to others? You see, if it drives you crazy to ride in the passenger seat, you might be a control freak. If it drives you even crazier to sit in the back seat, you might be a control freak. If it drives you crazy when your dog doesn't do what he's supposed to do, you might be a control freak. If it drives you crazy when your baby is born during the iron bowl, you might be a control freak. What are the characteristics of people who struggle with control? Well, one, controlling people tend to be selfish people. Right? They're driven by personal desires and outcomes. The elder brother in the Luke 15 passage we studied a few weeks ago is a case in point. Number two, controlling people are weak in their faith. In other words, people who deal with control struggle with trusting God. Because trusting God means you're not in control. Control uh, people like to have a say in everything. Do you remember in Job 38, you remember how God asked Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? God had to remind Job that only God gets to decide how the world works. Number three, controlling people tend to be legalists. Why? Because the need for control, dear ones, always flows out of a prideful heart. A controlling heart says, my way is the best way. A controlling heart says, my way is the right way. A controlling heart says, my way is better than anyone else's, including God. Before controlling people don't respond well when confronted. Jesus often confronted the most controlling group of people of his day, the Pharisees. Every time Jesus violated their list of rules of what it takes to please God, they went ballistic. And when Jesus trashed their list, they killed him. So I guess control freaks don't take it well when they're called out. When we come to Philippians chapter 3, we find the Apostle Paul calling out a control group in his day. The Judaizers. A group of people who struggled mixing law and grace. The Judaizers said when the gospel began to spread in the early church that grace wasn't enough. Why? Because they wanted salvation on their own terms. They wanted to control how someone got into heaven. And so in Philippians 3, what Paul does, beginning in verse 4, is that he just kind of walks down memory lane to show us 
how he let go of control. And here's what we find in Paul's life. Paul teaches us that we have to admit that all external efforts cannot change us. When he gives his list of credentials in Philippians 3, he is in essence saying, remember what I used to be? If this stuff worked that they're trying to sell you, speaking of the Judaizers, then who among all human beings on planet earth would it have worked for? It would have worked for me. Look at the life that I lived. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, it's me. Just look at my list of credentials. You see, with the right credentials, you can get into certain places. But without the right credentials, you can't. For example, try getting into the White House or the Pentagon without the right credentials. My wife and I took a family trip to Washington, D.C. when our boys were small. And uh, they were... going to be in um, a student leadership conference there that week. And so we went a day early specifically to tour a couple of things. We wanted a tour of the White House. We had never been in the White House. And so we called our state senator and had everything all set up. And our state senator told us what gate to be at, what time to be there. He would meet us there and he would personally give the guard the credentials to let us in and walk us through the White House. And so we drove up the day before uh, we slept just across the, the, the bridge from Washington, D.C. We got up about 4 o'clock in the morning and got three teenage boys ready at 4 a.m. Now, that's a massive task, right? And so we drive in, I park, we grab a cab, we go down to the White House, we go to the exact place where we're supposed to be, and because I like being in control, we're early. Right, So we're there about 20 minutes before 7 and we waited and we waited and there were several other people there waiting. About 7.15 we notice you know, one senator comes and gets a family and off they go into the White House and another one comes and off they go into the White House and we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait and finally by 9.30 I realize our senator's not showing up. We couldn't get in. Right? I could have gone to the guard and said, hey, look, I'm Derek Staples. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church Jacksonville. Useless. Because I didn't have the right credentials. Well, what Paul is doing here is giving us a list of his credentials to admit to the church at Philippi and to the Judaizers that this stuff does not earn salvation. And look at the list that he gives. He says that salvation is not by ritual. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. By the way, that's the prescribed day. That's the only day. The eighth day was strictly following the law. He says that salvation is not by race. He says, I was of the nation of Israel. Right? So for a Jew, Paul had all the right breeding. His parents were not mixed Stock. He wasn't grafted in. He says salvation is not by family. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? Benjamin is one of the most celebrated tribes in Israel. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob to be born in the promised land. 
Saul, Israel's first king, was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. When the land was divided among the twelve tribes, the holy city of Jerusalem was in Benjamin's territory. Mordecai, used by God with Esther to save the Jews from genocide, he was a Benjamite. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the most noble in Israel. He says salvation is not by heritage. He says, I, was a, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he strictly maintained his family's traditional heritage. He also maintained his native tongue. When the Jews were dispersed and they were scattered, many of them became Greek-speaking Jews. They picked up other languages, but not Paul. He held to his Jewish tongue as his primary language. He says salvation is not by religion. Notice he says, as to the law of Pharisee. So as far as the law went, Paul was a trained Pharisees. The Pharisees, uh, that's a word that means the separated ones, they devoted their lives to the rigorous observance of the law. He says salvation is not by sincerity. Notice, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, if persecuting zeal could have opened the gates of heaven, Paul is saying, I would have just walked right in. He says salvation is not by self-righteousness. Notice that phrase, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul claims there was no demand of the law that he did not personally fulfill. So Paul is saying to the Judaizers of his day, by human standards, I was blameless. And so he's saying, if you want to work your way to heaven, then take a look at what I tried to do. Take a look at my own life. I was in control of my destiny. So what was it that led Paul to conclude that external efforts cannot change you? What was it? What happened in Paul's life? To lead him to the point where he would argue for the rest of his life. When it comes to eternity, I'm not in control. One thing. And dear ones, I would suggest to us today that this one thing is the key to overcoming a controlling heart. And it is simply, we must replace control with the gospel. We must replace control with the gospel. All self-righteousness is attractive to a controlling person. Do you want to know why all of the cults and all of the works righteousness systems in the world are so popular with people? Right? They grow and grow and grow and flourish and flourish and flourish. Why? Because the flesh is always looking for ways to self-atone. The flesh is always looking for ways to control their own justification. 
So it begs the question, how do I replace control with the gospel? How do I do it? Well, first, we must see all worldly gain as loss compared to Jesus. We must see all worldly gain as loss compared to Jesus. What does the text say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul makes it clear that knowing Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything. No birthright or human achievement can compare to knowing Jesus. Paul is saying that we must treasure a saving knowledge of Jesus more than anything else in the world. A few years ago, a book came out entitled Love Wins. And in that book, Rob Bell, the author, makes this statement. He says, and I quote, Evangelicals are always talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Why, that phrase is never used in the New Testament. And I'm not even sure Paul would have a term to describe something called a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I have some news to share with Rob Bell. <laughs> right here it is. This is it. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And by the way, if you don't believe Paul, what about Jesus? Right? Didn't Jesus say to us, I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me? To be saved, to be united with Christ by faith is to know Jesus Christ as your Lord. Do you remember Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road? Do you remember that Paul was going about persecuting Christians and Jesus appeared to him, blinding him with brilliant light and Paul falls to the ground and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And do you remember Saul's very first words to Jesus that give the evidence of conversion? Who are you, Lord? Lord! The very first words out of the killing, zeal-killing Christian heart of Saul, the very first words out of his mouth when he met Jesus Christ was the confession that Jesus is Lord. Dear ones, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is the very first step in laying aside all control. Once you do that, you have to lay the gospel over your heart daily daily 
Because once you come to personal faith in Jesus Christ, your control struggles do not fade away. That is why so many people struggle with legalism, for example. That is why we say that salvation is by grace through faith. But boy, if I miss this, you know, if I if I miss this step, I must be off. Larry Osborne's book, Accidental Pharisee, by the way, if that's a struggle that you have, is the best book on addressing legalistic tendencies in your heart that I've ever read. Accidental Pharisee, Larry Osborne. We have to lay the gospel over our heart daily. We relinquish control in our heart by looking to the truths of the gospel over and over and over again. And that's exactly what Paul says. Now in your Bibles, when you look at this text, I would encourage you to underline or highlight the word gain. Highlight the word found. Highlight the word know. And highlight the word power. Because listen to the Apostle Paul describe the effect of the gospel over his life. Listen to what he says. I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I count them as garbage. I count them as worthless in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And he clarifies what it means to be found in Him. I don't have a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he concludes by saying that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. How do I lay the gospel over my heart daily? Well, I have to see everything outside of Jesus, even my control, as garbage, as rubbish, literally, as the stuff we flush away. That's how I have to see it. And I have to remind myself daily that I have gained Christ. That I have gained Christ. That's how I want to see my life. That's how I want to see everything in my life. I want to filter it through the image. I have gained Christ. I have found Christ. I have a righteousness in Him that I do not possess on my own. Jesus Christ has altered the landscape of my life. Now, I want you to do me a favor for a moment. Take your Bibles and just lay them aside. A coach might be able to control a team. A general might be able to control an army. A teacher might be able to control a classroom. A judge might be able to control a courtroom. 
But when it comes to eternity, when it comes to your standing before God, when it comes to the fact that a day soon awaits us, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and brings us to Himself, and no one except God will control the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Peter told the early church? It was suffering. They were struggling. They were being persecuted and killed for their faith in the gospel. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. He said, therefore, be serious and watchful. In your prayers. Do you know there are some who believe that the imminent return of Christ is not possible? Right? That Jesus will come after a series of events described in the book of Revelation known as the tribulation. I I would just humbly suggest that if that were true, why would Peter say to the early church, the end is near, look for it. Be watchful. The second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. It could occur at any time, at any moment. Do you ever watch a game and find yourself thinking, this could be the last game I ever watch? You ever find yourself having a conversation with a family member? Thinking this could be the last conversation I ever have. You ever teach a class and find yourself thinking this may be the last class I ever teach? You go to work and you gather your tools and you find yourself thinking this may be the last deck I ever build. You ever find yourself going to bed at night and placing your head on the pillow and thinking, I may have already seen the last sunrise that I'll ever see. You cannot control the thing that ultimately matters the most. But you can prepare for it by preparing your heart today to experience the power of the resurrected life by laying aside your own efforts and taking the gospel of Jesus Christ that He has died, that He has risen, and that He is coming again and you lay it over your heart. And that is the key to overcoming 